welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Well, we're talking about kingdom culture. Does anyone remember? Now, look, I'm not a fan of rom-com movies, but I do remember fondly a film with, is it Hugh Grant, the English guy, and Julia Roberts, Notting Hill. And there's a particular scene. So Julia Roberts, in case you don't remember this film, she plays pretty much herself, a famous actress from America, and she's in England, and she meets this totally normal guy who runs a bookshop, Hugh Grant, the sort of slightly cute, nerdy, you know, pommy guy, and um, and they strike up this friendship slash relationship, and he invites her over to his home or his parents' home, his family gathering, completely normal British home, and she comes in, and all the family are sort of gobsmacked because they realise. Who is this? Sorry, they realise exactly who she is. They know who she is and and they recognise her and they're all in the kitchen saying, how how do you know her? We didn't know this was your date, you know. But there's one guy, the brother-in-law or whatever, who's just such a nerd, has no idea, not socially aware, he's just a a lawyer or a stockbroker guy or something and he's just, oh, hello, what's your name? Oh, I'm Julia or whatever her character name was. Right, nice to meet you. And they're all looking at him like, you don't realise, do you? And she and Julie Roberts is kind of cool, but she realizes maybe he doesn't know who I am. I, that's cool, you know. But everyone else in the world knows who I am. She says, "And what do you do?" And she says, "Oh, I'm, I'm an actor." He goes, "Oh, yes. Well, I, you know." He says, "At university, I walked the boards a little. I, you know, was amateur theatre, and some of my friends have gone on and tried to make a living out of it." But he says, "Oh, but it's a scandal, isn't it? The money. It's you know, so hard to make a living. Do you know this? Do you remember this?" And he says, "For example, I mean, how much? How much did you earn in your last acting job?" She goes, "Fifteen and a half million." And he just goes, "Right." <laughs> he's, he's got that great English. Oh, it's it's Hugh. What's his name? Hugh Bonneville, is it? He's a very well-known actor. He's a Downton Abbey guy. You know, it was a long time ago. He was younger. Anyway, but a very good actor. And he just has this realization. Is this polite British way of who am I talking to? <laughs> wow, I really miss. And then I think he goes into the kitchen. What is going? Who is this person? Oh, that's a famous actor. Oh, why didn't you tell me? You know, no, no, no. And it's just such a cute moment where. He meets and has no idea of who she is. But of course, everyone else knows who she is because of, you know, her identity is, is provided to them because of her fame and because of her wealth, you know. But for this guy, he's just trying to meet her as a normal person. And, um, and, and, and it's very common, isn't it, when you meet people to ask two questions. What's your name and what do you do? And then we start pigeonholing people, you know, as he did. Oh, what do you do? Acting. And in his mind, acting was like, oh, you know, it's hard to make a living, you know. And of course, different levels. And then he had to reposition who he thought she was and all that. And so if you meet someone, for example, and say, oh, what do you do? And they say, oh, I'm a, a lecturer in philosophy at Sydney University. Oh, okay. You know, that, that'll be different to maybe the image you get if they said, oh, I work at Macca's, you know. Now, 
the guy working at Macca's, who knows? Maybe he's got an IQ of 150. Maybe he's actually got a degree from university anyway. Maybe he's got several degrees from university. Maybe he's actually doing underground research at Macca's for his latest PhD. Or maybe he just loves making hamburgers. You know? <laughs> or maybe he's just a young teenage punk who desperately wants his first car uh, over here, you know, who's just about to turn 15 but keeps telling me how he wants a car. It's like you've got two years to wait and I hear about it all the time. Um, but, you know, we tend to put people in a box and, 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 and of course, this pigeonholing can really mess with people's self-esteem because you are what you do is the message that we sometimes get coming through or you are how you look, how you appear, or you are who your friends are, who you associate with, or you are what you own, or any number of things that the world places value on and associates with our identity. And the culture of the world that we live in is very happy to tell you who you are, to, to try and help you figure out the answer to the question of who am I? What's, what's my value? What's my worth? Well, the, the world will determine your value for you if you, if you let it. will influence then your self-worth, your self-esteem. Because worldly culture, it's very much a, a meritocracy. Or in other words, a, 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 your acceptance in society is based on your performance or your position or your possessions or some other measure about you. Often things that really are just added on to you but aren't really internally who you really are. But you don't have to live in or under that system, that determination of figuring out your identity because there is another way, a better way, another culture that you can live in, that it will help you form your identity, your sense of who you are and your sense of worth. And that is the culture of the kingdom of God. And we've been examining some of the distinctives of God's kingdom culture and seeing how they compare and contrast to this worldly culture that surrounds us in this world. And you know what? This is really important because sadly, sometimes in history, Christians and, and as a group, Christians together as churches have been overrun by worldly culture. Not overnight, but seeping in and gradually over time, you can end up at its most extreme, where the Holy Spirit has kind of checked out. The lampstand's gone, but the, and the church is left governed by man-made rules and religious traditions and, and political or prideful kind of motivations, and you just end up with a place that's got little or no connection to God's calling, God's will, just an institution that's driving an agenda or, or following an ideology that's far removed from God's heart, God's purposes. And rather than preaching the gospel, sometimes they're just preaching a real watered-down version of Christianity. And that is why it's worth checking, you know, how much influence we have in our lives ah, as people in the world, but not wanting to be influenced by the world, as opposed to being influenced in God's kingdom culture. And so in 2020, you know, the craziness and the restrictions and, and stuff that's gone on, it's... It's bad, but it's not all bad because God has a way of turning what is bad for good. He will often help people find some positive when there's been some negatives. And so in this case, 
it's not so bad that churches all over the world have had this sealer kind of pause moment for a while where we couldn't have meetings the way and even now the meetings aren't the same so what does that mean who are we as a church what do we stand for how are we moving forward without the ways that we got used to and what's really the essence of the church what's the most important thing what kind of culture do we want or more importantly what kind of culture does God want for us what is his culture and then how do we cultivate that culture into our lives and our church and our community and so these are good questions for churches around the world to consider because things have been kind of crazy so today who are you as Roger Daltrey famously sang, and I trust you all appreciate the 1970s classic rock reference right there. If you don't, you need to go and study and listen to the best music of all time in the 70s. Right. Um, the Who. Okay. Saying who I am. Because um, the world, as I said, the world will tell you who you are based on different measures. But in God's kingdom, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're Julia Roberts or not, or a, an actor who makes no money or a lot of money, or you work at Macca's, or you've got a PhD or 12 PhDs, or how good looking you are, or what you own, or where you live, or what you drive. Or, none of that matters, because God values you just the way you are. Just the way you are. He's made you, he loves you, and my worth, your worth is not based at all on anything that I can do or I earn. It's just based on his unconditional love for me. And that is a game changer, as they say. That's a life-changing concept that changes our lives and will change other people's lives and what we pray and contend for, that they will come to a place where we just, where they, as hopefully many of us, most of us here as believers and followers of Jesus have received that revelation of, wow, God's love for me. It helps wash away sin and guilt and shame from the past. It empowers me to live today with confidence and to look to the tomorrow with hope. Because God loves me. God looks after me. God's for me. And the Bible brings this message to us time and time again. Because remember, the Bible is God speaking to you. And he has told you clearly and continually who you are and what he thinks about you. And so let me give you some refreshers, some reminders, some examples. Psalm 139, and hopefully we've got them on the screen. You can read with me. You may have heard this before, David writing with the revelation and understanding of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you created me, Lord, in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You know, that's a, you're fearfully, wonderfully made. Now, of course, some people mistake confidence for arrogance, but... You can be confident in the fact that God made you. But you don't have to be arrogant because confidence and humility make a great mix. But it's still confidence. It's still a spring in your step and something to face the future with hope with. And, um, and then we read on. Look, here's a few more. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's handiwork or masterpiece or creation created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do Philippians 3:20 
Our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you are a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of an earthly country. Most of us, Australians, the lucky ones, the smart ones, if they've bothered to get their citizenship. Anyone? Anyone? It's just been resident, but that's cool. That's all right. And some desperately praying. Some people in our church, you've got believing for residency and then believing for citizenship. But it doesn't really matter what country you're part of because our citizenship is in heaven. And it's better than all the countries put together. It's eternal and wonderful and perfect. Romans 8.37, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Overwhelming conquerors, incredibly able to, vic- to achieve victory through him who loved us. So then again, we're confident we can win, but it's not arrogance because we don't do it all on our own. As Tim was sharing over communion, it's through him. It's through Jesus, through his love, grace and work in us. This is constant. A uh, couple more, 1 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Everyone loves new. The old's gone. Some old stuff needs to be forgotten. Great. It's old. We're given a whole new fresh start. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. You, all of yous, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And there's those two cultures compared again, kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. And we've been called out of the dark into this kingdom of light. And look at all those phrases that describe his people as a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then one more, last but certainly not least, listen to this. John chapter 1, verse 12. John said, To all who received him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Come on. We all get to become children of God. I mean, I love kids. I, I, Bethany loves kids. Teach, in fact, teaching, teachers, if you don't love kids, get out. <laughs> you know, you've got to love kids, don't you? Teachers, we've got a few... I know people who have loved particular subjects thought, oh, I really, you know, I love English. I'm going to be an English teacher. Stop right there. Do you love kids? Well, they're all right, but I really love English. Don't be a teacher. You've got to love the kids. You'll never get the English in. You'll just be, you know, be talking to yourself. And the, the kids will all be kicked out of the classroom and you'll be you left, an empty classroom. You know? And so kids, um, I mean, Bethany loved kids when she was a kid. She used to babysit kids that are practically her size. You know, she's just always loved kids. You got, kids are delightful. I love seeing kids, you know, in our church community over the years growing up. And, uh, and so we, you know, we love children, but they're not always perfect. Not your children, the other children, of course. Yours are little angels. But, you know, even when your kids muck around and aren't perfect, you still love them. You know, you still, as a parent, you love them, even when you discipline them. And there's that funny statement, you know, fathers say, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And the kid thinks, no, it's not. <laughs> you idiot, but I better not say that. It'll, it'll be worse. I mean, I can see the paddle or the strap or whatever. It's, it's a no-brainer. But, of course, the father's trying to describe the sense of anguish or, or conflict because it's like, well, I need to discipline the kid and... Uh, but I love them. and Well, 
of course, we muck around and God's love is unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do, but no matter how you muck up, God will always love you. He will always forgive you. And yes, he may discipline you as well. Or with your kids, they're all different and some do things better than others, but that doesn't mean you love them more. You know, they're just... Speaking of which, I visited young Blake. I don't think the Reynolds are here this morning. There are So maybe they're watching. But Blake, I visited uh, Blake, uh, Stuart and Amanda's uh, boy. Uh, they were there. Uh, he wasn't on, at home alone, you know. He's only four. Yeah, they were out. They were out at the pub. He rang me up and said, hey, you want to go in the pool? Came over and Blake and I hanging out. No, I went to visit him because he broke his arm. And so I bought him a couple of little prezzies, little car and a, a set of little books. He's four, right? And I think, oh, well, you know, they'll read the books to him. And they're, they're, they're tra- about different kinds of transport, you know. Uh, and they've only got a couple of words per page with pictures. But I thought, yeah, well, they'll, they'll eventually, you know, he'll get into it and all that. I, I've never seen a four-year-old read like, like this kid. Unbelievable. Amanda says, oh, here, look. Blake, open the book. And he starts reading. It's unbelievable. You've got to try him out. It's like a, the best party trick in the world. I'm serious. He is, he's unbelievable. He's just reading, you know, long-haul semi-trailer, you know, construction manager. It's like, are you serious? Every word, you know. It was just amazing. Um, now, that doesn't mean they love Elizabeth less, you know. Oh, Elizabeth, you know, and they've got one on the way. You know, they're they're going to love their kids all the same, even though they're different and, you know, talented in different areas. And it's the same for us. You don't have to compare yourself thinking, oh, look at that guy. I mean, look at the way Michael plays the guitar, honestly. And Chris, you are up here. And, the, you know, it's sort of, it's admirable, but you're kind of jealous, aren't you? Guys, didn't you air, air guitar as a teenager, but you didn't put the hours in. So... Stop complaining. But still, you know, they're so cool and they're, God loves him more. Look at him. He's got coolly groovy hair. Look at all that hair. God must love him more. <laughs> if God loved us on how hirsute we were, some of us are in big trouble, Byron. You know, God fortunately is not. But it's okay. We're all different. We're all talented in different areas and God loves us all the same. I must move on. So I just hope you're getting that basic concept that our identity can and should be found in God's love for you. That's it. I'm a child of the King. That'll do. That's my identity. But another area related to this concept of identity is the issue of success. Because again, the world around us will define success differently to the culture of God's kingdom. Um, and you will be influenced by whichever culture you're living under and then your behaviour patterns will be affected. So it's very easy, for example, to get caught up working too hard, working really hard to achieve things so that you feel good about yourself, to get there so you can feel successful, to attain recognition or or popularity, or even people aiming for fame, because it's like, if I, if I can just achieve this certain position or promotion, or get there, or build the business up to this level, or I can just, and, and so sadly, some people are just working too hard. That may not be your problem. <laughs> it may be, some people need to work harder, but uh, I read recently about an article that reflected on the fact that people over the last couple of decades, things have really changed. 
from admiration for what people owned to now uh, so many people in the Western world, regular people can own stuff that previously only the elite wealthy people could have. And so now there was no real boast to say, oh, look at this fancy watch or here's the pictures of the holiday we had at St. Moritz. Well, no one's going anywhere anyway, but, you know, or, or the fancy car that a lot of regular people with improved incomes over the last few decades can aspire to own some of this fancy stuff. And so a new measure of success has developed in some parts of our culture and some social circles, and it's all based on how busy people are. And this is now a new level of status to say, well, I'm just so busy. I don't know if I can fit. Wow, I've got so much going on. Responsibilities. Woo, wow. I'm just flat out. Oh, and it's kind of like, wow, you're more important because you're really, really busy. And so this sort of level of status. But as a result, people are stressed because they're working harder than they should. And they're not taking it easy when they need to and having a break and recharging the batteries and they're driving themselves beyond their limits. So it's crazy. But so, you know, the measures that the world uses to gauge success are not the same that God uses because some things you can't measure, you know, like attitudes and, and motivation and stuff going on in the heart, like love and grace. And these are powerful and important and they make up a big part of our life, but you, you can't measure them. You know, um, do you remember when Samuel was asked to go and uh, anoint the new king of Israel? And God sent him along with a flask of oil that he would anoint. And he was told to go to the house of Jesse. And Jesse's there and he brings his sons out. And, and it says in 1 Samuel 16 verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and this is one of the sons of, of uh, Jesse. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. On what basis? Because he was tall, good looking, and maybe had a really good resume. He'd been in the army and he'd already, you know, been a successful guy in the beginning of a career or, you know, whatever standards there may have been. The very next verse proves that that didn't matter because it says, but, verse 7, the next verse, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then perhaps you know the story. He says, all right, what about the next one, next one? He's got seven kids and God says no to all of them. And then he ends up having to say to Jesse, have I got this wrong? God did send me here. These are all your boys, right? And Jesse has to say, well, I mean, there is David, <laughs> as if, but you wouldn't want him. And Samuel's like, well, I don't know. We might as well get him because something's going on here. All right, David, bam. And here's the young little whippersnapper out there with the sheep who didn't even get a, a show in on the lineup. But... He's the one because he had a heart after God, had faith in God. It was character-based. And, of course, he ended up being the best king that Israel ever had. So God is not concerned about the stuff that the world thinks is really important, the, the, the looks, the appearance, the, the outward signs of, of so-called success. And 
you know, bigger, even in that case of the tall, dark and handsome dude in the, in the house of Jesse, bigger isn't always better. And um, in Matthew, it's interesting, you know, he records uh, 12 different analogies Jesus uses for the kingdom of God. Or Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Most theologians agree that they're interchangeable terms. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, so he used this phrase kingdom of heaven. But other gospels use kingdom of God. But the 12 different analogies he uses, it's interesting. The first four, you find them in Matthew 13. The first four all describe seemingly small and insignificant things that are actually powerful and effective and influential. So the first one is the farmer sowing the seed. And it grows up and it says, well, it, it has different results and you've got to watch that you don't have weeds in your life and some grow to, you know, some are taken away and some don't have any root in themselves. They didn't grow. But it's just a seed, just the word of God, just coming into someone's life, just a little seed makes all the difference. Gideons are full of stories like that. They put the Bibles in hotels all around the world and people are, they've had people who are suicidal, literally about to pull the trigger and they've just out of the corner of their eye seen a green book and I would be looking out the corner of my eye for a distraction at that point too, wouldn't you? Thinking, is there any other way out? Is there just, oh, all right, I'll just look at this book because I can always come back to the gun, but I feel the need to just be a little distracted. And then I've opened it up and bam, God's spoken to them, just the word of God and their whole life was saved and changed. And so the word of God's powerful, but it's often just coming in small little words of witness. Little, in fact, we're going, I'm going to give you all in the next few weeks We've got a whole bunch of Gideon's New Testaments and we'll pray over them and, and have them as witnessing tools and you can sow them. But you, you can have the word in your heart and on your lips too. You just share, just a word from God. And then the next one is also the seed, but it's um, referring to the harvest at the end of time, sown and how the good and the bad uh, is not necessarily seen until the end of time. And so the differences can be subtle and until there's a harvest. Can, can be negligible, it seems, but, but there is a big difference between good and evil and that talks about the, the last judgment. The next one is uh, the mustard seed, one of the smallest seeds in the world, one of the smallest seeds that they would sow into gardens and yet it would grow into one of the largest plants in the garden and be full of more mustard seeds for making mustard. So very fruitful from a tiny little seed. And then yeast, this weird small stuff that influences and affects and gets bread to rise. And so Jesus, and notice this, Jesus was speaking primarily to Jewish people. The Jewish people at that time, when you say kingdom of God, they're thinking of the temple of Solomon. They're thinking of the glory days. They're aware that God is great. God is, you didn't have to convince them who God was. They knew God from the Old Testament. They had read and heard the stories and parting of the seas and, and the plagues and the power of God. And so they would expect Jesus to say, the kingdom of God is like, what? An army. The kingdom of God is like this great, powerful force. The kingdom of God is like, look at those mountains up there. The kingdom of God is like the pyramids big and massive and they're the kind of analogies they would be looking for and Jesus just throws this curveball and keeps saying kingdom of God's like what like a seed it's like a little bit of yeast it's like and and yet it's still powerful and influential and so he's saying that God often works in subtle ways
and that success doesn't have to be grand and flashy and noticeable and famous, but can still be influential and powerful. And so you don't hear yeast talking itself up. It just gets on with its work quietly. You don't hear the seeds in the backyard groaning to be bigger and better and achieve, and they're just doing their work. You know, they just pop up. And so the same way, we can rest in who God has called us to be. Yeah, you don't have to be someone you're not. You just find your identity in Christ. You're comfortable with the way God's made you, and then you just get on with your life, serving Him, doing what He's called you to do, being successful by simply obeying the call on your life. That's success. My definition of success is obeying God. Simple as that. And he's all got a plan and a purpose and a pathway for us to follow. You can find it out. It's not rocket science. And then you just keep on that track. That's success right there. And you don't have to worry about what the world says or what others are doing or how this pressure seems to come onto you about what maybe your life could look like. You just know your gifts and you also know your limitations. So you are content with who you are, how God made you. That's releasing. It it doesn't mean that you're bludging. It just means that you're staying in your lane and you're just being at peace with who you are and you carry on. Not striving and stressing, but you're just happily serving and working your way and enjoying life. Amen? And so, that's good preaching. How do I say that with humility? All right, next point. Be humble. Don't talk about yourself. Okay. <coughs> Have you ever done that? Your throat's itchy, you drink water and it's worse. <coughs> and you dare not cough in public. <laughs> you cough or you get a sniffle and ah, people run away, they're going to kill me. All right, so the third area I just want to touch on regarding our identity is this whole thing of now and the future. Like, in God, you can have a very long-term perspective on life. In his culture, we need to because the Lord moves slower than we would like sometimes. And God's kingdom culture is he's not in a hurry. God is not stressed. He's not racing. The world says you've got to do it now. You've got to have it now. I want instant gratification. I want that now. Put it. We're going into debt. I want it now. I don't care how much it's going to cost. Wear the card. Get another card. Pay that card off with this card. Come on. Oh, free interest for three weeks and then it's going to cost me 25%. That'll do. It's a great deal. Great. Sign here. Oh, I want that card. Great. That's fine. We've got finance. Don't worry about it. What about these numbers? Yeah, don't worry about that. Just sign here. Oh, wow. It's great. You know, And it's all like you can get it now. You can get into debt to get it now. And you've got to have that. You've got to seize the day. That sounds good. Oh, yeah. That's, we're quoting Latin now. That's God, that's, that's authentic then, man. You'll approve that. It's carpe diem, all good, you know. So it's, there's a whole lot of stuff about, you know, achieve and get it and go on that holiday. Well, okay, maybe we'll put the holiday off until COVID's over. But, you know, there's a whole bunch. Don't wait for anything. You've got to live life to the full. But some things take time. Some things would take a lot longer than you like. And that's Okay. Because it can build faith, it can build resilience, it can build patience, even in the whole possessions thing, you know, delayed gratification. Sociologists have done studies to show that people enjoy things often a lot more when they wait for them. In fact, the enjoyment is often before you ever get it. 
You've had that. You've looked forward to something and you enjoy the looking forward to. Come on, admit it. You go to bed at night thinking, oh, I just can't wait till I get that new whatever. Mm. You know, and then you get it and after two weeks, it's like, what is it? Where? And it's not so important, not so special. That's materialism getting a hold of you. And so it's, it's okay when we don't get everything right now. In fact, there's a whole bunch of great stuff that we want to achieve and have dreams and visions for and they may not even be achieved in our lifetime. But that's okay because we are part of a bigger plan. It's actually healthy to have vision that's bigger than what I can achieve in my lifetime because it shows that we're getting a little beyond just ourselves. We're into God territory. We're into longevity. We're into multi-generational ministry. And that's good. We're, we're seeing that, okay, I'm a smaller piece in a bigger puzzle rather than me being the whole puzzle of one piece. It's not a very interesting jigsaw game, is it? <laughs> I win. Yay. One piece. You know, we, and so... How about this? Luke, I read Scientific American recently. <clears throat> so I'm not really that scientific, okay? But I did read an article about a butterfly called the Painted Lady and it migrates over 15,000 kilometres from the tropics of Africa to the Arctic Circle. 15,000 kilometres. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that sounds like too much for one butterfly. Because I've seen butterflies and that would be a long way for a butterfly. And you'd be right. One butterfly can't do it. Because it takes place, this migration, over six generations of butterflies. They are born with this innate guiding system to keep going until they get to the right destination. And they're only one-sixth of the way there for each generation. The article said each generation works out their migration path with only their genetics and instinct. These multi-generational migrations are truly fascinating because these tiny little creatures with brains the size of a pinhead are capable of following migratory patterns laid down many generations ago. Well, that tells me two things. First of all, it's just more evidence for God with his hand of design you know, in creation and, and nature reflecting his creative hand. Uh, the fact that they have this innate instinct to just wake up, get born and start flying in the right direction. Right? Um, it's also indicative of how God moves, of how God works, how he's happy for things to take generations to achieve. And so I find out of that that, you know, it's okay if you've got dreams, like I said, that aren't being fulfilled quickly because it may be that this is just a multi-generational dream that I'm part of and I'm going to play my part and then I'm going to pass it on and it won't be completely achieved in just one lifetime. Do you remember that passage in Hebrews chapter 11? I'll come to a close within the hour. Um, you know, uh, there's got all these heroes of faith and then Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 reflects on it and says, therefore, let us throw off the sin that entangles us because of this great crowd of witnesses testifying to how we should live the life of faith. Let's follow Jesus, keep our eyes on him, keep going forward, forward, forward. Yeah, great. But the end of chapter 11, after they've listed all the great heroes of faith, not all of them, many different people that you can read about in the Old Testament, it says, fascinating, last two verses of Hebrews 11, it says, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yeah? But watch what it says then. 
yet none of them received all that God had promised. And read on. For God had something better in mind for us. Hang on, talking about them. Now he's talking about us. So God had something better in mind for us so that they, oh, now we're talking about them again, so that they would not reach perfection without us. So there's a connection between them and us generations ago and they didn't all get what they were aiming for. I thought they were people of faith. I thought if you name it and claim it, you'll get it just like that. Come on, in Jesus' name, faith. I mean, some faith teaching, you know, kind of pushes that line and it's not always right there in Scripture or experience that it'll happen that way. Of course we contend and we see the promises of God and we believe for stuff and sometimes it happens quickly and sometimes it doesn't happen quickly and so slowly that this is a multi-generational kind of rollout of God's plans and purposes. Isn't that amazing? They still live by faith. They kept going. They had a good reputation because of their faith. They went on to heaven, but they were aiming for something they'd never quite fulfilled. Now, you might find that discouraging, but I find that just gives a sobering perspective on life when you have disappointments. It's okay if it hasn't worked out just the way you wanted, just as quick as you expected, just as simply as you believe for. It's okay. God's hand is still there. Right? It's not because it's not the worldly culture that says you failed, it didn't happen, what's wrong with you? No, it's okay. I'm just obeying God, I'm just doing a bit, and I'm part of a bigger puzzle. And I don't always get to see, just like one little piece of the jigsaw puzzle hasn't got the perspective from back up here of the whole picture. And so we are part of God's plans, unfolding from generations ago until now and into the future. And so, come on, keep a long-term view of your short-term trials and tribulations and keep heading, keep running with endurance, as the next verse in that passage says, the first verse of chapter 12. So, for your identity, you're a child of God. Yeah? Regarding success, just obey Him and you'll be successful. And for your times and the future and your seasons of life, it's all in His hands if you allow Him to govern and rule and lead in love in your life and it, it won't matter what the results are it's all in his hands yeah come on we hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon for more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.